I just don't see why you're gonna throw away the recipe is all. I mean, why don't we just go in there, lay down some tracks like we always done? Yeah, why can't we just walk hard? Yeah, Dewey, what do we need all these people for? I don't need people around me stifling me. So if you don't like it, there's the door. Dewey, are you saying you don't need us no more? Not unless you can open your mind and learn to play the fucking theremin. And welcome once again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and in today's episode, I'm highlighting one of my favorite musical instruments, the theremin. My main sources for today's episode were the documentary Theremin and Electronic Odyssey, directed by Stephen Martin, and the book Theremin, Ether Music and Espionage by Albert Glinsky. I first became interested in the theremin back in the early 2000s in high school, and it started with the Flaming Lips. I was fascinated at how Flaming Lips frontman Wayne Coyne played this instrument seemingly just by waving his hands around an antenna. He plays it with this imagination and excitement that's just infectious. We'll talk about even more uses of the theremin in modern music and film in this episode, as well as how it works. First, let's talk about its inventor, Russian scientist Leon Theremin. Theremin was born in the late 1800s and lived to be almost 100, passing away in 1993. His invention pioneered a new age of electronic instruments. And today, Leon Theremin serves as an inspiration to innovators in the field of electronic music. But his story isn't just one of invention and creativity. There's a lot more that lies under the surface. size to Leon Theremin, was born in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1896. He was an extremely intelligent man who had an interest in science, specifically in circuits and magnetic fields, starting at a very young age. 
By the end of high school, he had plans to go to university to study physics, but in the midst of his first year, Theremin was called up to military service for Russia in World War I. He passed military engineering school and graduate school with flying colors, eventually overseeing the construction and operation of radio transmitters and international listening stations for Russia in the First World War until 1918, and the Russian Civil War in 1919. After his service ended, he was invited to work at a technical institute in Petrograd to continue the experiments he had to drop when he left school. In the midst of these experiments, in 1920, Theremin was working on a machine that would measure the density of gas, opting to add a whistling device to his tool rather than just a visual meter. The whistling device, when working correctly, would change in pitch when the density of gas changed around it. But Theremin noticed that when he moved his hands around the device, he noticed a change in pitch and volume that he was able to manipulate into a melody. He had played the cello as a child and started playing tunes he remembered. It wasn't the result he was looking for, but this strange confluence of electromagnetic waves would be the discovery of a lifetime. When you think of a musical instrument, in most every case, a musician has to be touching it in some way in order to play it. Hitting drums with drumsticks, holding a guitar, putting their mouth on a harmonica. But Leon Theremin's invention is still today the only instrument that is played without touching it. Instead, it emits sound just by the player waving their two hands around it, literally creating music out of thin air. The mechanics of how the theremin works are very interesting. It's made up of a wood box and two antennas. The box nowadays is pretty small, but when it was first invented, Theremin had all the electronics inside of a larger wood cabinet. The two antennas attached to the instrument emit electromagnetic fields. As Theremin found in his research of gas density, due to the natural capacitance of the human body, when you move your hands within these electromagnetic fields, it interrupts them. And that creates a sound. By moving your hands in specific ways around the two antennas together, you can create a melody. And you need both because each antenna has a specific role. The rod sticking straight up controls the pitch or the note that's being played. So the closer your right hand is to the rod, the higher the note. The further away your hand is, the lower the note. The other rod is on the side of the box and it's more rounded. This one controls the volume. As your left hand moves downward closer to the rod, the volume gets quieter. As you raise your hand over the rod, the higher you go, the louder it gets.
At the time of Theremin's discovery, in the Soviet Union, everyone was interested in new uses of electricity. They would use it to advance transportation, innovate communication and listening, and more. And Theremin's new instrument was very much an electronic innovation, so he showed off his new device at an electronics conference in Russia. And Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, was extremely interested and invited Theremin to come to his office to show him his invention. Theremin played some tunes for Lenin in his office in the Kremlin, and Lenin was thrilled. He played it himself, and Theremin later said Lenin was a natural at it. The Russian leader was so thrilled, in fact, that he sent Leon Theremin on a tour of the world to demonstrate this new Russian innovation, a tour that would end with a stop in the United States. Theremin arrived in New York City in 1927, only intending to stay for six months. But his invention and life in America would draw him in, leading him to stay for the next 11 years. In the late 1920s, Theremin performed his instrument with the New York Philharmonic and patented the Theremin in 1928. He then granted commercial production rights to RCA, who planned to make the Theremin the next big thing. RCA marketed the Theremin as a device that would be in every home, like a piano. And people went crazy for it. It was weird, beautiful, and such an arresting visual to watch it being played. And it's quite possible the theremin today could have been in every home if it weren't for the Great Depression beginning with the stock market crash just one year after theremin's philharmonic performance. The theremin was a luxury item and wasn't practical for personal use. Plus, it was really difficult to master it. But Theremin kept working to refine his instrument in Depression-era America, collaborating with composers, securing performances at popular venues, and gaining mentors in science and music, including Albert Einstein and Henry Cowell. He ingrained himself in New York society and the burgeoning music industry there. One of the musicians Theremin met early on was a young woman named Clara Rockmore. She was from the Soviet Union as well, and he became absolutely smitten with her. He was married once already and divorced shortly after he arrived in the U.S. But though Rockmore didn't return his romantic interest, she was blown away by his invention. Clara had been a child prodigy on the violin and had moved to America to attend a music institute to further hone her craft. But after suffering from tendinitis, she couldn't play anymore. When she met Theremin, she saw the opportunity to make music again on an instrument she could play even with her injury. She became Theremin's protege and the instrument's most prominent player, a thereminist for the rest of her life. Here's a clip of her playing. As Theremin continued to experiment with movement and sound in New York, he created a version of the Theremin that would work for dance. The terpsitone, as he called it, was big enough to react to movement from the entire human body. He had an opportunity to get involved with a dance company in New York, the American Negro Ballet, an all-black modern dance company. 
He hoped the terpsitone could be used as part of their choreography. It was really difficult to use, and none of the dancers could master it. But one dancer in particular caught Theremin's eye. Leon Theremin fell in love with Lavinia Williams, a brilliant young woman who not only danced, but spoke six languages and was an avid reader and artist. Their union was extremely unlikely, as not only were they 20 years apart, but culturally were divided even further. As an interracial couple, Leon and Lavinia were frowned upon by society in the 30s. They would be seated back by the kitchen at restaurants, they lost friends and social status, and received endless glances of disapproval. But they didn't care. They were in love. Leon and Lavinia were married in a secret ceremony in 1938. By the spring of 1938, support for Theremin's work had started to dwindle, and his company was losing money. The Theremin just hadn't caught on like he had hoped. He was also starting to look a little fishy to the U.S. Department of Labor. Theremin had been red-flagged for overstaying his visa. His marriage to Lavinia was a Russian marriage, with no papers registered with the New York Marriage License Bureau, causing further entanglements as it related to his visa. Plus, with his business struggling, he was unable to pay his bills or his rent. It was a tough time for the inventor. morning of September 15, 1938, Theremin and Lavinia were at his New York City studio when a group of Russian men came in and took Theremin away. Lavinia was terrified. She had no idea what was going on and assumed her husband was being kidnapped against his will. But as he was being escorted away, Theremin told his wife not to try to follow him or get in touch. Apparently, he knew something she didn't. Theremin left with the men, was taken aboard a Russian ship, and disappeared, just like that. You might have guessed that Leon Theremin's initial visit to the United States was actually serving another purpose. Vladimir Lenin wasn't just interested in sending Theremin around the world to show off his new instrument. He wanted information and trade secrets. It turns out that Theremin had been conducting industrial espionage for the Soviet government during the 11 years he lived in the United States, sending data and secrets about U.S. industrial technology back to the Soviets. Whether he acted out of fear or made his own choice to spy, I don't know. But I'm guessing he left the USSR knowing he really didn't have a choice. He had an opportunity to promote his invention around the world, but there was a price. His story is just so crazy. If you want to learn even more about him, I highly recommend reading Albert Glinsky's book. It's incredibly thorough, but if I tried to include everything in it, we'd be here for days unpacking it all. Anyway, despite the arrangement Leon Theremin had made with Lenin and more than a decade of service to the Soviet Union, life was about to get difficult for Theremin back home in Russia. Whether the KGB did in fact kidnap him from his New York apartment 
or Theremin left the United States of his own volition is unknown. All we know is that the manifest of the boat he was taken away on contained the same number of names when it left the U.S. as it did when it arrived to take Theremin away. He became invisible. And back in the U.S., it wasn't long until rumors of Theremin's execution were widely published. Most everyone thought he was dead. But he wasn't. And instead of being welcomed back to Russia as a hero, Theremin was immediately taken into custody at a Russian work camp, forced to live in captivity and create tools for listening and spying. It was there that Theremin created The Thing, a listening device hidden inside of a United States seal and gifted to the U.S. ambassador to Russia as a gesture of friendship. It transmitted confidential conversations from the U.S. Embassy for the first seven years of the Cold War until it was discovered accidentally in the early 50s. Though Theremin was released from captivity in 1947, he kept working for the KGB voluntarily until the mid-60s. He then worked as a professor at the Moscow Conservatory of Music, where he continued to build theremins and other instruments. In the 70s, he became a professor of physics at Moscow State University and retired in the late 80s to travel the world. One of his final stops was New York City. The filmmaker of the documentary, Stephen Martin, captures the moments theremin has one last time with his protege, Clara Rockmore. It's really sweet. She shows him around her New York apartment, which is filled with theremins and photos of the two of them together. Then he sits down and listens as she plays a beautiful tune on the custom theremin he made for her so many years ago. Though it didn't catch on commercially, the theremin had a big impact on the music and film industries beginning in the mid-1940s. It first saw a resurgence in popularity when it was featured prominently in the Academy Award-winning score of Alfred Hitchcock's 1945 film, Spellbound. same year, it was used in the soundtrack to the film noir The Lost Weekend. The sound of the theremin became synonymous with science fiction films, the sound of it usually being used as a backdrop for a spaceship landing or a scene involving aliens. For instance, this one from 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still.
or this one from the 1953 film, It Came From Outer Space. Speaking of sci-fi, I always thought the Star Trek theme used a theremin, but it doesn't. This one's actually a woman's voice augmented, which proves just how human the theremin can sound. working its way into popular music. Some bands used it more as a melodic addition, like In Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. bands, like my example of the Flaming Lips earlier, chose to use it as more of a sound effect than a melodic device. You can hear it being played by Jimmy Page in the psychedelic middle section of Whole Lotta Love by Led Zeppelin. Ever since theremin's invention, there have been many similar sounding instruments on the market, one of which you're familiar if you listen to the Beach Boys episodes. While Good Vibrations uses a theremin, the song I Just Wasn't Made For These Times on Pet Sounds uses the electro theremin. Another sound-alike instrument that I love is the singing saw, a flexible handsaw played with a bow. It's rare, but artists like Neutral Milk Hotel and Tom Waits have used it in their music, and you hear it prominently in the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest theme song. Though I do love listening to these sound-alikes, the theremin is still the pinnacle of ethereal, spooky instruments. They are still made today, and the largest maker of them is Moog Music in Asheville, North Carolina. The company's founder, Bob Moog, started building theremins when he was a teenager and became completely obsessed with them. After writing a how-to article on theremins for a hobby magazine, Moog started getting letters from people saying they wanted to build their own but didn't know where to get the parts. So Moog and his father started a business. Moog would build the circuitry and wrap the tight coils needed for the theremin to work, and his dad, a woodworker, would build the cabinetry. They continued this business on as Moog went through college and grad school, where he eventually developed the first modular synthesizer. Moog Music would go on to become the world's leading synthesizer manufacturer and one of the most influential companies in electronic music. 
If you're ever in Asheville, definitely go to the Moog Factory. It is a paradise for anyone who has an interest in music. When I went, I got to test out all the instruments they make, including the mini Moog and one of the theremins. The theremin is incredibly fun to play, but so difficult to control. You'd really need a ton of time to practice and a really good ear to be a good thereminist. You can buy or build your own theremin today. Moog still sells DIY kits that you can put together yourself with a bit of soldering, or you can purchase one already built for around five or $600. It's one of those instruments I'm so obsessed with, but have never been able to pull the trigger on buying. It would be so much fun to have, but it's an investment, and I don't really have a musical need for it. It would take a long time for me to get good enough at it to justify adding a theremin to my band, but maybe I'll start saving up. No better time than now, and it's a dream instrument I've always wanted. Though his life was plagued by political entanglements and struggles, the legacy Leon Theremin leaves behind is one of innovation and intrigue. Theremin pulled a new sound literally out of thin air, a sound we weren't scientifically supposed to hear. And today, the variety of theremins available and the number of thereminists around the world continues to grow. Nearly 100 years after its invention, this hauntingly beautiful instrument is still just like magic. Thanks for joining me today. I'm thrilled to be able to share this instrument with you, and I think I may continue this series with others I think are interesting, like the didgeridoo and the mellotron. Let me know what you thought about this episode over on Instagram at Radio Gaga Podcast, and leave me a review on iTunes. episode is about one of my favorite bands since high school, Arcade Fire. We'll highlight their third studio album, The Suburbs. I absolutely love this record, which has been described by frontman Wynn Butler as a mix of Depeche Mode and Neil Young. Give that one a listen this week, and I'll see you back here next Tuesday. I